0: and welcome to a very special Pride episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. This is our first ever Pride episode, um, which, you know, actually is fun to choose a movie that represents pride and and my fantastic co-host and I went back and forth over many possibilities. Uh, So why don't we just get right to it and bring him on so he can let us know just what movie we chose. Without further ado, it's the one and only, the extremely homosexual,
1: Michael Verratti. Are you ready to shake your groove thing, Peaches? Oh, I'm ready, girl. Well, that's good because we are celebrating the one and only 1994 Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, directed by Stephen Elliott, starring Terrence Stamp, Guy Pearce, Hugo Weaving, and Bill Hunter. That's right, the epic journey across the outback in Great Big Heels. I'm just so glad that we chose
0: this film and and we definitely had a bunch on our list. Many movies that we will definitely tackle. This is the second to last episode of season two. So we have one more episode after this. Just to let listeners know, Michael and I will be taking a brief summer break, um, mostly so that we can get to work on season three, quite frankly. Like, this show takes a lot of time and energy to prepare for. So we are going to be breaking in a bit and I just wanted to let folks know but if you're a Patreon subscriber uh, Michael and I will be continuing to put up our mini mass episodes our videos we'll continue to have our zoom party so our Patreon isn't going anywhere Uh, so you can subscribe and be part of the fun and be part of the midnight mass experience while we prepare for season three now This is uh, the movie we chose for the Pride episode. And Michael, I guess I think you and I know why we chose this. But what I don't know is your story with discovering Priscilla. Do you
1: remember the first time you saw it? I absolutely do. I saw Priscilla on Home Rental. I, I saw it on VHS. And it was one of those movies that I knew about. But because of where I was living... And I hadn't fully, you know, figured out myself yet. I was kind of afraid of it. I remember renting it with a friend, a straight friend, and we watched it. And I didn't fully enjoy it the first time I saw it. Because I was on edge the whole time trying to gauge what his reaction to the movie was going to be. Because if he was just like grossed out or, you know, offended, then I didn't want to have any tells. I didn't want... To reveal that these people were me in some way. So my first viewing of it was kind of unsatisfactory and Sounds stressful. It was stressful. And you know, you know exactly what I mean. Those, those moments in time where here's this thing that connects you to a world that you know is yours, but there are others watching you, or you don't feel quite ready to access those things. Right. And that that level of stress that gives you. Um, So I I had a very unsatisfactory first uh, visit with Priscilla and the girls. But later I came back to it and realized what a truly, truly special movie it is.
0: I had a little bit of a different experience because I was in college when it came out. And uh, I was out of the closet when it came out. And I was already starting to dabble in the mid 90s club kid culture was you know in the clubs it was it was something that was Still very, very underground in the queer scene. But that's where, before I became a full-fledged dragazon, I found my sort of non-binary gender expression. And it was through club kid culture. And so I was wearing a lot of lipstick and barrettes and girly clothes. But there was a lot of gender fuck, as we call it. And then Priscilla came out. And I'd already obviously been in love with drag queens because of Divine and Frankenfurter, as I've discussed. But Priscilla and seeing it with my college queer friends, it was like a game changer. It was like, oh, this is amazing. And we were in central Pennsylvania, you know, where that level of sort of Sydney, Australia, outrageous costumery and creativity and sort of decadence and the makeup and the hair and the headpieces, all of it just blew us away. And so we actually started to like have themed house parties and things. And so much of that was inspired by our love of Priscilla. It played at the uh, artsy movie theater in state college. And so I think I went and saw it probably three or four times, you know, (laughs) while it was in the theater.
1: I do appreciate that you referred to this as a game changer, because I think for younger members of our community, they need to understand that it was because um, when we, Talked about Vegas and Space all the way back in the first episode of Midnight Mass. One of the things we discussed was in the year that Vegas and Space came out, 1991, drag was really looked kind of down upon by the, the larger queer community. In the wake of AIDS, there was this sort of larger response to present ourselves to the norm, air quotes, or the mainstream as we're just like you. We want the same things as you. So then we were trying to eschew all of these things that seemed out loud and queer or outrageous or other. So when Vegas and Space came out, it was sort of brushed aside on the film festival circuit by people who were looking for more serious queer fare. Mm -hmm. And it took until Priscilla came out and Philip Ford talks about this when he talks about Vegas and Space's trajectory that Priscilla broke out several years later, and it got the chance that Vegas didn't. And it all really does have to do with the weird respectability politics that our community was engaging with at the time. And then it feels like by 94, we hit this point where we were like, no, we're fabulous and we need to fucking own it.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing about Priscilla that really makes it special and and not to say anything negative about any other drag movie that had come out especially Vegas in Space which I love but Vegas in Space is a science fiction fantasy yes. and the people in Vegas in Space are men that become women and they live on a, a a glamazon planet or they go to they travel to this planet you know and a lot of movies as i've discussed multiple times where drag was presented and it was quote unquote respectable had taken the queerness out of it you know so it was men who needed to survive the mafia like some like it hot or dress as someone's grandma so they could see their children like Mrs. is <laughs> alpire you know so so we knew that drag was popular in movies hello tootsie but queer people presenting as drag performers but not just for fun you know Showing the fun stuff, showing the fabulousness, showing the wit, the cleverness, the biting humor, but also showing things like gay bashings, you know, dealing with AIDS and AIDS phobia, Uh, a trans woman, you know, on her trans journey, while also being a drag performer and being a senior in the queer community. Yes. Uh, Gay parenting was, was addressed in this movie. You know, this fucking movie did not shy away from tackling a whole realm of experiences. And I think that's one of the things specifically about this film that I think makes it so special. And, and also let's face it, a lot of the things that we're getting sort of mainstream play that were playing in central Pennsylvania, if it was a queer movie, a la, you know, Philadelphia or something and not the city, I'm talking about the movie, they were stories about AIDS and AIDS was so such a dark cloud around us. And not that those movies should not have been made. They definitely should have. But this movie came along and it dealt with a lot of different stuff. And it was, for me, it was the the members of the community that I wanted to be a part of. You know, this was the queer community that I, as a young queer person, said, those are the people I want to hang out with and do things with.
1: Well, it lays it all out. Like you said, there's there's a messiness to it, but there's an authenticity to it. And Terrence Stamp has said in interviews that one of the things that the movie really does is it looks you in the eye and asks you, what are you so afraid of? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important because queer portrayals were either meant to evoke an emotional tragic response at the movies or were presented as so other or strange or funny that we kind of lost the humanity and priscilla about these three drag queens who are just road tripping across australia brought the humanity back in a lot of ways we didn't realize that we need it i'm just glad
0: that we chose this for pride i think that, you know, over the years, I've had a kind of a back and forth relationship with, I guess, what you could call the gay community. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us haven't always been in alignment with the larger movement, per se, because sometimes that has included trying to um, silence or erase weirdos like myself, you know, from, Mm -hmm. from the movement. But I feel like right now, in this era of like, you know, Roe versus fucking Wade being overturned, you know, a Supreme Court that is attacking women's right to choose. While at the same time, we have politicians literally trying to outlaw drag queens from being around children. You know, Priscilla is exactly the fucking movie I want to highlight for our Pride episode because it's joyful. It is celebratory. It is drag. But it also is real and it deals with some really deep, you know, real stuff that we face
1: as a community. In addition to all of the political reasons that you just mentioned, there's populist reasons. This movie hit in such a way and struck a chord in such a way that it made people look at the drag community on a larger whole differently. And we don't get drag race without Priscilla first? Absolutely not.
0: No, I mean, it really was the game changer as far as opening the doors to people wanting to see more stories and more drag. I mean, it's the first real example of uh, of an explosion of drag happening. I've been around long enough to see that that wanes, it ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. So yes, Priscilla made drag really popular. It was two years after RuPaul's supermodel. And, you know, we had this sort of like very popular period of drag. And then I would say in the early two thousands drag went out of vogue again, you know, and of course, that's when I started to really, <laughs> you know, really like actually have some success. You know, um, so drag, uh, you know, is as has uh, always had an interesting. Um, sense of going in and out of style now i I think drag is so in style that um it's actually out of style for interesting people you know and i and I know that sounds bizarre but like you know there is this sort of like drag is so so popular that I think a lot of the the sort of more uh interesting, you know, clever artistic members of the queer community are reaching a point where they're going, okay, this is probably why Dragula and some of these alternative things are, 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 are having success because I think people are looking for, some
1: people are looking for more challenging drag. That's part of what makes it exciting, right? When counterculture becomes big enough that it becomes culture, from that a new counterculture is born. For sure.
0: Well, I'm so excited that we have the guests that we have today. Me too. I love this because we we have a guest who's actually from Australia and a bona fide drag performer in their own right, but just in a very different kind of way. This actor, Mark Trevorrow, plays a character named Bob Down. And I know a lot of our listeners do not live in Australia, although some do. Yes. Chris. Hi, Chris. We, we know some of you are listening. Um, so he for sure knows who Bob Down is. And um, it took some Australian friends, Courtney Act specifically, to um, really, really hammer it home to me. This friend I have that I met in San Francisco through my fantastic neighbors, uh, Mrs. Vera, who's a friend of the podcast and been on the podcast, is actually quite legendary and famous. I mean, in all of Australia, not just to queer people, but like, you know, on national television regularly, that kind of thing. She said that he's kind of like Australia's version of sort of Pee Wee Herman. Like everyone knows who Bob Down is.
1: And so much so that Courtney Act recently did a television interview with Mark Trevorrow, Bob Down, where they talked for a half hour all about Mark's life and career, which if you are a subscriber to our Patreon, I will include that video this week. He's here in his
0: level of insight um, around the, 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 the film, the people that inspired the making of this film, the director of this film, the casting. It was extraordinary. So we definitely won the lotto when we asked him to come on and talk about Priscilla. Absolutely. And you're going to hear from him right now.
2: Don't be a hero
0: It is my extreme pleasure to announce our next guest, our very special guest, who's actually beaming into us from Australia itself. Uh, I first met Mark Trevorrow through my dear friends, Mrs. Vera and Michael, who live across the hall from me. And I did not know when I first met him that he is literally uh, an Australian Icon, and you know how I found that out is because once I asked Courtney Act herself if she'd ever heard of a character named Bob Down and she said to me, darling, Everyone in Australia has heard of Bob Down. I grew up with Bob Down. I love Bob Down. So it really did make an impression on me. And um, what was so lovely is is eventually, after years of friendship, I got to meet Mark Trevorrow's character, Bob Down, in a show when he presented it at Oasis here in San Francisco. And of course it blew me away. Um, The accolades that Mark Trevorrow has achieved are many, uh, many TV show appearances, film appearances, many, many uh, comedy concerts. It could, I could go on and on, but he's here today with us, uh, the man behind Bob Down, and I'd like to welcome him to the Midnight Mass podcast.
3: Without further ado, it's Mark Trevorrow. Hi, boys. Oh, my goodness. It's only going to be a letdown after that buildup. Oh, <laughs> well,
1: I'm actually glad that Peaches mentioned Courtney. Courtney acts reverence for you because recently you and Courtney sat down to do a one-on-one interview for Australian television. And during the course of that interview, you spoke about how around 1993, 1994, there was a a gay renaissance happening in Australia, which not only was good for you, but was the time that Priscilla was released. So to kind of set the stage for our discussion of this movie, could you talk to us a little bit about what was going on at the time in Australia? that led to all of this?
3: Well, of course, at the time, the early 90s in Sydney was the absolute peak of the HIV epidemic, which was a horror show for all of us. We, we didn't have it as bad as you guys did, but boy, we had it bad. We lost dozens and dozens of friends. But fortunately, what happened was that Mardi Gras continued defiantly all the way through the epidemic, uh, through the mid-late 80s and into the early 90s. And then Suddenly, our national broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, which is your P, like your PBS, they decided around about 94-95 that they would broadcast the Mardi Gras Parade, which is our giant nighttime. It's our pride parade, which is held at night. So it's spectacularly um visually beautiful because it's artificially lit and that, you know, half a million people on the street and all those that sort of stuff, you know, a, a, a classic pride parade, but a pride parade which had created an enormous amount of international interest because of the genius of Doris Fish and Peter Tully and, uh, you know, people that we know and love and certainly well-known in San Francisco who introduced these large, oversized sort of, I think inspired really by the Macy's parade I, I suppose, when I, when I think about it, but oversized um, floats because there were hundreds of thousands of people on the street trying to see, and Doris and and the creative team in the this sort of early mid-'80s realised that if they created really large float entrance, then everybody could see them from wherever they were on the street. And, for example, they had uh, a giant Imelda Marcos chasing <laughs> giant stiletto <laughs> shoes, uh, and people have still got some of those stiletto shoes. There was... We had a horrible anti-gay um, uh, campaigner who's still in our state parliament called Fred Nile, who was a, a religious nut, who still is. And we had his head, uh, Doris created his head on a giant platter, <laughs> Stuff like that. So what happened was uh, people who were watching television, people were looking at all this. And it was creating such interest in the media because the pictures were so spectacular that finally the national broadcaster decided that they would broadcast it. This happened at the same time as uh, Stephen Elliott uh, was creating, working on and pitching and creating um, uh, the movie of Priscilla. So there, the two things, the Mardi Gras broadcast, which which then has has been broadcast every year, on prime time, it's not just on the live in the afternoon. Do you know what I mean? Like I know that that's what what happens uh, in everywhere where the pride parades are held during the day. The local TV, pro- you know, will broadcast it uh, in the you know, live in the afternoon on a Sunday, which is fantastic. And I love how the Beerusphere always steal all the pictures and always get the front page of the chronicle. <laughs> it, everybody hates them, and. Um, <laughs> So what was happening was that this was on primetime evening television and, and it would be uh, the broad, always broadcast, it's always broadcast on a, on a Sunday night. They either do it live uh, on the Saturday or they uh, do an edited package and it's been broadcast every year. It's been on about four different networks. Everybody fights to get it. That, combined with Priscilla, was a transformative moment in queer Australia for queer Australians because... Um, Well, for obvious reasons uh, that we showed everybody how to have a good time.
0: (laughs) Well, growing up in the U.S., I quickly learned about Australian queer culture through Priscilla, pretty much. You know, like, you know, we, of course, as you know, when you grow up in the U.S., Sadly, we live in this sort of bubble, you know, where we're we're kind of like told, you know, as kids like, oh, don't even bother to want to travel or look look at other places. We're the best, you know, um, which, of course, we, we realize later as adults who travel that we're you know, we were fed a bunch of lies. But, you know, growing up as a queer kid in high school and understanding queer culture, I'm so grateful for the movie Priscilla because it did open my mind to like, oh, wait, fabulous queer stuff is in other countries and as, as dumb as it sounds, you know, you know, I was a young queer kid who didn't, you know, totally understand. And uh, Stefan Elliott uh, who wrote and directed this movie, who you mentioned um, was part of that scene and had been, you know, exposed to it. Uh, Michael and I, you know, stumbled upon a a really cool documentary um, that Michael found called between a frock and a hard place. Yeah. And so if the, the listeners today want to check that out, it's Fabulous, because what it does is it shows you this archival video footage of
3: this vibrant, rich, really polished drag scene. Particularly in Sydney. Sydney has had a a very sophisticated drag scene going all the way back to the arts balls uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Mardi Gras is just a, a continuation. See, Mardi Gras has always been the parade at night, followed by a giant dance party at our state fairground, which is at the end of our gay strip. Our right. gay strip finishes at our sta- old state fairground, which is now Fox Studios. So they built oh, a new state wow. fairground way out in the western suburbs. But the, uh, so we still have these magnificent old uh, giant pavilions, which are now movie studios. They've shot Superman, Star Wars, everything in this place. So they kept it, and we still have access to those giant halls for the for the dance party that follows. So there's always been this spectacular queer party scene that goes right back decades and decades in Sydney. And then in Sydney in the 60s we had lay girls which was the you know the trans and drag performers in our North Beach area in our Kings Cross and then a club called uh, Capriccios which opened in the early 70s on Oxford Street our gay strip which is like our Castro. If you go to YouTube and you type in Capriccios uh, uh, Sydney you will see there's one film of one of those shows and they are unbelievable. So Mardi Gras and what happened with Mardi Gras and what led to Stefan creating Priscilla is really a, a continuation of something that was already spectacularly well established, particularly in Sydney. Melbourne too. Melbourne has always had a very vibrant drag scene. But the Sydney drag scene, uh, you know, right up until the uh, 80s, was everybody went, everybody loved the drag shows, which I think there's the parallel with San Francisco. As you're describing it, I do think it sounds like obviously
0: a very uh, sister city to San Francisco. Sadly, I've not been to Australia at all, which seems crazy to me. Darling, Um, you've got to get your ass down here. I know, (laughs) but Mark, of course, spends a lot of time in San Francisco and we have a lot of mutual friends. And so I like knowing that we're these sister cities. And one of the things I think that's um, really notable about what Stefan's idea was what's so clever about it was Stefan going okay this is what we know of as creative drag queer culture here you know in Sydney let's create a scenario a fish out of water scenario where we have to bring these folks into parts of Australia where where they're not supposed to go and so I'm just wondering like when you first saw Priscilla, uh, what was your experience of it? What did
3: you think about it? And also being someone from the community. I knew all about it right from, right from before it was even going to be shot because my dearest friend in Sydney is Cindy Pastel, who is one of our greatest uh, drag performers who is still performing. And mm-hmm. uh, Cindy is the model for the Hugo Weaving character. So what happened was there was the Albury Hotel and there was the Imperial. They were the two main drag pubs. And one was in Oxford Street and one was in the Inner West, another gay, a very vibrant gay area of Sydney. And Stefan was a regular. And I used to perform at the Albury with Cindy and Miss 3D and uh, Pat Gently in the Showbag. They had a fabulous trip called the Showbags. The Albury Hotel and the Imperial had drag seven nights a week all Mm. through the 80s. Wow. And, and uh, I used to uh, DJ, I used to DJ, and then I would tape 20 minutes of my set early on the evening and then run downstairs and change into Bob and come up and do shows with Cindy and the Show Bags in the days when they would, the, the, the queers would just look at you if you were a boy performer and just like couldn't wait to, you know, unless you took your clothes off, they weren't interested. Did you say the band was called
0: Cindy and the Show Bags? Yeah, the show bags. That is so fucking hilarious. Isn't it brilliant? <laughs> I want to steal
3: that. Did you guys have that tradition where the where the manufacturers of sweets and cakes and, and things would have sample bags at the state fair? Was that oh, yeah. an American thing? They used to have sample bags. And way back, my dad was always outraged because they used to be free back in the you know, 30s and 40s and 50s, and then they started charging for them. So you would you would come home from the state fair on the train with a thousand uh, show bags, all everybody up, all both arms. They were, you know, cardboard bags, uh, paper bags with samples in them, and they were called show bags. And so that's why that's why it's such a particularly brilliant name for a, a drag troupe, because everybody that's what we always refer to these sample <laughs> bags as, right? So Stefan was a regular at the Albury, and he was a regular at the Imperial, and he was quite obsessed with it. And he was working on this idea for the film, and he um he asked Cindy. Uh, if he could come round and interview Cindy. He was he was doing interviews with everybody. He was recording uh, audio interviews with everyone to get their stories. See, because the desert thing had already happened. These The Queen's, the lay girls' troops and, and various spin-off troops from the, the lay girls' cabaret era had already been touring in the outback. So there were all of these legends and stories of these Queen's being in the outback, in these really rough, violent, homophobic, Wild West places. So he was collecting a lot of um, stories from people. So he asked Cindy if he could go around to interview Cindy. And he turned up at Cindy's place and and Cindy, Richie, Richie Finger, opened the door with his 12 month old son, Adam, on his arm. And uh, because Richie had had a baby with his friend, Karen, who then they got married and they raised this fabulous kid who's now 37. (laughs) Adam is now 37. So the door opened and to Stefan's astonishment, there's Cindy with a 12 month old. And, and he said, "Who? what? Who, who's that? He said, well, this is my, this is my son, Adam. And uh, Stefan said to Richie, no, I'm not coming in. I, no, I don't know. I won't come in. I'm going home to rewrite the script. Wow. Yeah. Which
0: is one of the reasons yeah. that Michael and I have talked about this. When Michael and I decided to choose Priscilla, one of the reasons that Michael and I discussed was the amount of realness in it. Yeah, and in in this era of controversies around, you know, straight people playing queer people or, or cis people playing trans people, you know, I was saying to Michael, I'm like, well, all I know is when I saw that movie and as, a, as someone who was getting into drag and I saw another movie to Wang Fu, there was one that rang really true to me and felt really real. And it addressed issues like gay parenting,
3: that most people
0: didn't want to touch. No, you know? God no. You know,
3: gay parenting. When you think about it, has been something that's happened. I love how uh, how the idiot right, you know, think that it's something new. It's like right. guys, grab a fucking rail. You know what I mean? Like, gay people have had to get married to live their lives, so that they could keep working, so that they could take they could contribute and participate in society. Gay and lesbian people have had to get married for, for millennia. And gay and lesbian people have had children, you know, and then they've, they've broken up and then they've, become, they've come out in late in life and they have adult children. It's sort of like this isn't something new. It's just something that idiots don't know about. So Priscilla is docu-drag. All the characters in, in Priscilla are based on amalgams of real people. There was a beautiful trans performer and creative soul called Rose Jackson, who was a legend of Sydney drag and one of the greatest costume designers and costume makers of all time in Sydney, worked on major theatre shows. What was that club that's only, I think it's only just closed in San Francisco. There was a club that ran for decades and decades that had a really elaborate costume show with the headdresses.
0: Oh, Beach Blanket Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. A lot
3: of the drag in Priscilla,
0: or what I think of as Sydney drag, reminds me of Beach Blanket Babylon.
3: Mm. And so Rose was a wonderful performer who was also a very talented costume maker, and she was a star at Capriccios. And Rose is the um, direct inspiration for the Bernadette character, mm. for Terence Stamp's character. So Rose was this beautifully elegant, oh, I've got some fabulous pictures I can send you of Rose, unbelievable. Rose was elegant and restrained and lived, it was a full trans woman, you know, she lived as a woman and she was elegant and fabulous and she had her own nightclub and then, of course, the Guy Pierce character is based on many, many outrageous queens that worked at the Albury and at the Imperial. You know, these were sort of bartenders who were so over the top that ended up in the shows. (laughs) One of the most unique parts of Priscilla is the headdresses. The headdresses were invented by another dear mate of ours from the same era, a fabulous queen called Michael Gates, who's got a character called Maud Boat, which is such a camp name. Maud lives now back in the country town called Lismore up near Byron Bay, in this beautiful part of northern New South Wales, halfway up the Australian coast. And Maud has been one of the creative forces of a New Year's Eve festival up there, a queer New Year's festival called Tropical Fruits that's been going for more than 30 years. Maud invented the sculpted foam... Headdresses that look like wigs. And the reason why she invented them was that back in the 80s and early 90s, when she first came to Sydney, do you remember the giant TV sets that were the back projection ones? They were, oh, yeah. They came in these enormous boxes with this enormous polystyrene packing. The Albury Hotel was in a very wealthy little part of Sydney called Paddington, which is a gentrified old working class suburb. And so there were very wealthy people living all around the Albury Hotel just at the end of Oxford Street. And they would chuck out these boxes with the packing, the, the polystyrene packing. And Maudie suddenly saw all these giant pieces of polystyrene and started collecting them and realising that she could sculpt them. She was sculpting the headdresses out of wow. these giant blocks of polystyrene. <laughs> then she would paint them, glitter them, and then fit them to, to people's heads, put a chin strap on them, and they were genius because we all know, well, people who don't work with wigs don't realise what a nightmare they are. You can't do quick changes with them. You cannot do quick changes with wigs. But these wigs meant that you could do quick fabulous quick changes and they were so sturdy and 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 not only that unlike a lot of the headdresses they were light they weighed about an ounce cuz they're polystyrene so they didn't hurt your neck cuz headdresses can really fuck up your neck and uh, the heavier the headdress, the worse they are to use. So that was something that Stefan jumped on and Tim Chappell, the designer. Now, Tim Chappell, he was a beautiful young barman at the Albury who just became obsessed and was always brilliant at making his own costumes and clothes and became obsessed with drag and used to do a little bit of drag but used to do all the costumes and that's Tim and Lizzie, you know, Lizzie Gardner, who was the costume creator on, on the film. They, Tim and Lizzie won the Oscar. They won the Oscar. Yeah. yeah. So they latched onto these headdresses. So the film has been created into a, a live stage musical, which is still touring. It's always on somewhere in the world. And Maud over the years has been creating the headdresses for the show. Stefan drew directly from the queer performing um community and the queer performing scene everything you see on that screen. And in fact, if you watch the funeral scene. That's all the queens from the Imperial yeah. and the Albury, including Cindy. Ah. They're all in, they're all in that funeral scene.
1: Going back to the phrase that you used earlier, docu Here you just spoke at length about all of the various places Stephen Elliott pulled from your community and from the lives of people you know. And so you're on this journey, you're watching the movie become what it becomes. And... In a way, that's a lot to put on a motion picture. So could you tell me about the first time you saw it and what your reaction was? We know that
3: sometimes that can go well and sometimes not. It was triumphant from the first time anybody saw it. I think I might not have even been at the opening because I was living in London from 1990 to about 89 to about 99. I I was based in London. So I might not have even been around for the opening in uh, Sydney. I don't have a recollection of it. I did do a lot of coke at that time, so (laughs) didn't we all? It was triumphant from day one. It was a huge success from the moment it first screened. And, of course, uh, it's beautifully documented in the Ladies Please uh, documentary, which was the original documentary that they attached to the DVD, but it's on YouTube. There's a documentary called Ah. Ladies Please, and it follows Cindy and Stryker, Stryker Meyer, and another fabulous queen called Lady Bump. Stefan took those three, Cindy and these other two queens, to the Cannes Film Festival Mm. where it was a smash and they performed to promote it. And it's all documented in this fantastic, documentary called Ladies, Please, which was attached to the original DVD release. It's on YouTube. Check it out because it tells the whole story of, of the year that that film exploded. So Stefan clearly
0: had a hit on his hands and obviously is uh, a very, you know, uh, talented filmmaker and storyteller. And he worked with these queens and, and members of the community. And then he ended up casting uh you know actors yeah. who weren't from the community right and we know uh that that a number of people who were featured in the documentary Paris is burning uh went through a period of anger towards Jenny Livingston um and felt like maybe this you know this woman kind of exploited them and and i i know that the attitudes around that have changed and that people you know feel differently but there was a period where there was a lot of anger from the ballroom community How did the Australian queens, the people who are in the trenches, respond to the massive, massive success that is Priscilla? Were they happy for Stefan? Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. What what, what are their feelings?
3: A lot of people were pretty pissed off. Okay. That's what I was wondering. And and I remember at the time, a number of us felt, why would you cast straight actors in these parts when these Queens can be just so magnificent uh, to, to perform. But, mm-hmm. of course, what you've got to remember is that at the time, Stefan was not going to get funding. He was not going to get backing without stars. I mean, uh, Terence Stamp was a major reason why he was able to get the funding. Hugo Weaving was already as an established Australian movie star right. at the time. Mm-hmm. Guy Pierce was, was a massive television star. Guy Pierce was on... Uh, our soap operas, you know, um, Neighbors and Home and Away, the, the sexy, fabulous, you know, tea time soap operas that are still still, Neighbors has only just wrapped just in the last, after 37 years. So they were three very, very established stars. And we know that in 1994, that movie, I mean,
0: it sucks. It sucks yeah, that it, it, it could not have been made uh, the way that they made it. Yeah you know the budget that they received yeah. it could not have been made uh with the drag performers right. and that just sucks that's the business of show yeah. um yeah. but what i will say you know stefan did by creating that film was stefan opened up doors for all of us yeah for decades absolutely you know, no question there wouldn't no. be a ruPaul's drag no, race wouldn't. if there wasn't priscilla you know priscilla was the thing uh-huh. that opened those doors. So, and I get where they're coming from. I understand yeah. it. I mean, I've watched my own friends, you know, become, you know, um, multimillionaires, and you know, it, it all re- revolves around going on a certain TV show. And you know, the, yeah. the, you know, it, it is in our nature to be bitter and <laughs> and uh, frustrated, and we are the underdogs. I mean, we always it's have true. been. We're the underdog.
3: Oh my God, you are so right. Look, if you're forty, you were born in 1982 that was the year I went professional as a performer, right? So if you're under right. 30 or 40, you're probably thinking, what the hell are you guys talking about? Because the young queers, and, and I hate even going here with this, you know, when I was young, because you don't want to be that queen on the bar, sitting at the on the stool at Twin Peaks, you know, telling you how tough we had it, you know what I mean? Because it's so boring to young people. But, the young queers see Courtney Act, and they see all the queens from um, RuPaul. Or they see every, you know, queer is now mainstream. Queer is now part of mainstream entertainment, and it's so hard to explain to someone who's under thirty or forty that there once was a time when you looked at in the in the newspaper, and if you saw a drag queen, it'd be like um, Terence Stamp and Hugo Weaving at the opening of Priscilla with a drag queen. You know, they right, yeah, wouldn't right. even bother asking the drag queen what her name was. That just used to... And at the time, it used to make my blood boil, right? And um, so, yes, there there was a reason why people got bitter and twisted because we were so marginalised. I mean, I was doing a boy character. I was like the, the original drag king doing Bob. I was never interested in doing drag, But Bob became my drag queen. So I used to be the boy with the show back. So Cindy and I used to do boy-girl duets. We used to do uh, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, Old Black Magic. We still do. And um, the one time I've ever done drag was one at Tropical Fruits about four years ago. Cindy and I were so pissed off because we'd agreed to open a drag competition in the camping ground. And we didn't want to do it. And so at the last minute, we swapped. I did drag and Cindy did me. We did Chuck Pastel and Bobby Down. And we and we reversed the numbers. The only time I've ever done drag in my life, there's a video of it. I'll send you the link. And um, Please do. So th- there was a reason because we were so marginalised. And then Priscilla was this huge turning point. And, of course, all the people that inspired it, it was very generous of, of Stefan to give everybody that funeral scene. It was his way of thanking them. But at the same time, it was like crumbs.
1: Well, and something that Peaches and I discussed with Pandora when we talked about this is that we knew the idea that three straight men in this role would be a controversial topic because it's still today. It's still something that our community struggles with today. Yeah. And speaking of, of controversy, you know, the thing about cult cinema is cult cinema always has an element of subversion. And sometimes subversion ages well, and sometimes it doesn't. And we have talked a little bit in some of our other discussions about this movie, about some of the things that didn't age as well, like uh, the, The Asian Wife. Uh, and yeah. in, in that portrayal and how uh, Felicia uses a dead name, kind of weaponized against Bernadette. But the thing that I wanted to ask you about, because Stefan mm. has said in an interview that he couldn't make this movie today. And his reason was not either of those things, but was actually because of the aboriginal scene with I Will Survive.
3: I don't see that as being a problem at all.
1: He cited it in an interview, and I we were just wondering if there was something that we were... That scene is joyous. That's what we thought,
3: yeah. That scene is totally inclusive. And yes. In fact, um, in the stage productions, there's always been an exquisite lead dance given to, uh, uh, to an Indigenous dancer, this beautiful boy called Kirk Page, who's part of a, an incredibly prominent Indigenous family of performers and dancers and creatives. And so there's always been a beautiful solo for an indigenous dancer in the stage show that scene is joyful and inclusive it's like the the two most put upon the two most oppressed groups in australian society get together and put on a fucking show we were baffled we were baffled we were saying the exact same thing we were saying what are
0: we missing we we don't get it because to us it's two groups that understand each other they connect over the fact you know, that they are... We're outsiders.
3: Done. You're outsiders too. Let's celebrate together. A really close friend of mine who's one of our great... He who was in the original stage production of Priscilla, a, a wonderful queen called Trevor Ashley, who does the most wicked Liza Minnelli impersonation, which I made him do. He's a great impressionist. And he used to open... In the original production of Priscilla, he opened as Tina Turner. He literally opened as if we were in a nightclub. And Trevor is now directing a new stage production of Priscilla, which opens on the Gold Coast, which is out like our Vegas. It's opening at a casino theatre next month. And we're so excited because for the first time ever, Bernadette is being played by a trans woman. Bernadette is being played by this legendary uh, drag performer and trans woman who we adore, who's indigenous, by the way, called Vonnie Britt Watkins. Now, Vonnie was part of the original lay girls' shows way back in the 70s and 80s. She's one of the biggest drag stars in Adelaide, in South Australia. She is playing Bernadette. So there you go. That's the first time a trans performer has been cast to play Bernadette. And not only that, Cheryl, you know, the hilarious rough woman who's, you know, what have we got here? A couple (laughs) of cowgirls, right? Sherl is being played in this production by the legendary Carlotta. Now, I know you guys must have heard of Carlotta. Carlotta is the first person in Australia to become public as a, as a trans person. She had her sex change in the late 60s. She's, she was the star of Lay Girls. She's been a star yes. on Australian television and stage. She's in her late 70s now, still performing, still amazing. She is playing Shel. Wow. And Carlotta said to me, oh my God, darling. She said, I'm playing a woman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had just gone to the opening night of the Frameline Film Festival here in San Francisco. And it makes me realize that what you're suggesting is exactly what they should do because the opening night of the Frameline Film Festival last night was Jamie Babbitt, uh, who's a lesbian filmmaker. She did, um, but I'm a cheerleader among many other movies, is directing a series for Amazon of uh, a league of their own.
3: I saw the um, woman came out at the age of ninety five. Yeah, just saw yes, and oh she was God. there last
0: night. She was amazing, and of course, it was one of those magical frame line moments. But because they're doing a series today, and again, we're not saying anything negative no. about Stefan. Stefan had to
3: work in the environment that he had to work in.
0: Exactly. But now, like Penny Marshall's movie being realized by Jamie Babbitt, I mean, in, I don't want to give too much away, but let me just say the lesbianism is not subtle. Uh, the interracial relationships, these lesbians are going for it.
3: Look what's happening with women's uh, professional sport. It's exploding here. Women's teams in, in our traditional straight football world, basketball world, uh, soccer world, uh, it's incredible what's happening here. And it is so, so fabulously darky. <laughs> <laughs> we need Stefan, maybe Mark, you should be the
0: executive producer or some sort of producer. You should get Stefan on board with this. They, they need to do a Priscilla series with yes. all drag performers
3: and trans women. Look, I'm going to send you pictures of Vonnie. Vonnie is 72 years old uh. and statuesque and built like a showgirl, like a Vegas showgirl. Vonnie is like magnificently beautiful. And not only that, she's one of the funniest queens you will ever hear on a stage. She hosts this weekly show in Adelaide. I can't remember what it's called. It's got a camp name, like Search for a Tragedy or whatever. Anybody can get up and do a drag number. And she stays on stage and comments and and reacts. And she is one of the most fabulously natural comics. If it was ever done again as a series, Vonnie should totally be uh, Bernadette. No question. There could be parts for Cindy, for Maud, for all of these legendary and beautiful drag performers that are still rocking it in their 50s and 60s and 70s. As we're
1: wrapping up, I'm going to ask you a question that I like to ask every guest. When we consider cult films, they're movies that we carry with us our whole lives because they attach to us in a certain way. But for you, this journey and this movie, you were witness to it. Yeah. The whole time.
3: Well, it's been pain and pleasure. In a way, you almost don't like talking about it because it is such a precious thing, Priscilla, to so yeah. many millions of people. It's almost better not to know this stuff. Right. It's almost better to just to, to, to not be aware and not be connected to the whole scene that produced it because you don't want to bring people down about it.
1: But you are connected. So how has your relationship to this movie changed, if at all?
3: It's never changed because I was so hip to what was going on before it was made, while it was being made, after it was released, when it became a hit, when it was turned into a musical, when it went to Broadway. And and now finally, a, a queer director, it's the first time a queer director has directed it. Yeah, th- this new production that Trevor's doing, which is opening at the Star Casino in in July in on the Gold Coast in Surface Paradise, which is such a stunning location for it because it's such a camp old, hilarious like Miami meets Vegas. And so the relationship will always be a mixed one; will always be ambivalent. But that's only because I know about it. Yeah. But I also I, I know enough about media, and I you know because I was a journalist, because I've I've done what I've done. I also know. It doesn't matter. It is a legendary thing, which was a giant turning point in Australian queer culture, along with the Mardi Gras television broadcasts, which led to so many young queers not feeling suicidally mm-hmm. isolated. Australia is a tiny version of America. where like a giant continent with only 25 million people, which is not like America. That level of isolation and, and homophobia, the viciousness of it has been just as bad here as it, as it has been in the States. And so the film is a precious, precious object and a precious legacy that will always, always mean something so special. So, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Yeah. I think that is the
0: perfect idiom to describe progress and how it's just never pretty. No. And sadly, to get to these places, feelings get hurt, toes get stepped on and we try not to, but it's just sort of like part of it. And um, I think what you boiled it down to is such a great reminder. Like I often describe the Rocky Horror Picture Show as being my, it gets better video because as a young queer person who felt totally alone, completely alone in Catholic school in Annapolis, Maryland, discovering John Waters and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, when I say that it literally saved my life, I'm really not exaggerating so much. You know, I was, I was in a dark place. I was basically suicidal, you know, and movies have that power. And w- one of the, the things of, uh, about that documentary that Michael found, uh, Between a Frock and a, and a Hard Place, that, that was very eye-opening for me was just the vehement homophobia that existed in Australia. Like oh, they, wow. don't, they don't um, shy away from showing you how awful it was. And it much like
3: here. Another reason why I think Stefan should seriously pitch to Netflix to make a series based on Priscilla is because look what's happening with this new explosion of homophobia. Yes. You know I mean, I just can't, I just can't believe what I'm reading. What these candidates that have won these primaries in the last few weeks? This thing about grooming, using the word groomer and grooming. It's like back to the fucking '70s and '80s.
1: No, Peaches know? and I spoke about this when we covered Cabaret because it seems like historically we'll have these moments where we get very close, and then there's this fascist pullback. There's this. Oh yeah. Pull back, you know, we so we see it with Weimar and then the Nazis building up in the 80s and then we get Reagan and AIDS. And now here we are. Drag queens are on TV and some mom in the Midwest is upset about it. And what the fuck's going to happen? You know, it's
0: this weird form of distraction because we're really dealing with a culture here in the United States where our come to Jesus moment over, you know, gun safety has happened over and over Over, and over over. and over again. And so they're, they're grasping for straws, you know,
3: all of a sudden it's the weirdest shit, you know, and it's, and by the way, it's just a backlash to gay marriage. They just, they're going to, they want to get us back in yes. marriage.
0: You're right. Yeah. I hope Stefan does do it. I know that for me, you know, I was I was a young adult just starting drag. Priscilla was a game changer for me. It's a great movie. I mean, clearly it helped launch th- three. Well, Terrence Stamp already had a, a really great big career, but the other two really got, you know, their talents now have been so, so seen now in so many movies.
3: Did you know that Terence Stamp never saw rushes while they were making it? He was so horrified about being in drag that they yes. did not show him the rushes. I read that. I think that in a way, then you don't get
0: distracted by, you know, some of the, the other bullshit. It's true. And so, for, it's so true. for that actor, she really had to believe as Terence Stamp like, it didn't matter that she had the voice that didn't sound like a woman. That is the story for a lot of trans people. You know, not everyone could afford to have all of the, you know, hormone replacement therapy and the, the facial feminization. And so I love that performance. Yeah, me too. Because it's so authentic to me. Totally.
1: What I like about Terrence Stamp in retrospect is how honest he has been about how afraid he was to take on the role too. Yes. Part of the yeah. reason he didn't want to see the rush is because he was not able to deal with taking on this part of himself. Yeah, And in the documentary that Peaches has mentioned, he speaks about this complete and utter fear that he had. And it took until they did the scene where they dance in the bar, where he realized, wait, I can embrace this. But it took weeks of shooting before he yeah. really realized, no, this is okay. And he th- writes
3: it, doesn't it? He writes that. Yeah. It. yeah. But I mm-hmm. think
1: it's important for people to understand that that fear of the queerness of, of the feminine, of the other was palatable to this person who was enmeshed in the world of art. He yeah. was terrified of it because he knew what it meant to others and that's a generational thing and that he had his own breakthrough making the movie is significant in of itself.
3: Look, this was an era where if you came out as gay you wouldn't get work as an actor. Everybody yeah. was gay, everybody was queer, everybody that was making the movies, everybody's working on the movies, everybody that was directing the television, producing the TV, everybody was queer but nobody could come out, you know, Tim Timothy Conagrave. Tim was one of my dearest and oldest friends and was in the cabaret group with me called The Globos that I had before I was solo. Tim felt that he had to come out to me as HIV positive in 1985. He joined the group and we were putting together the last show that we did as the Globos, which was like a 60s lip sync revival thing. And Tim felt that he had to tell me that he was HIV positive because he felt that that was a a responsible thing to do. But then he had to beg me not to tell anybody, including anybody else in the group, because if it got out, he was a working actor. If it got out, he would never work again. And these are queer directors, casting agents, Producers that wouldn't give queer people a job if they came out. So the fear around that for Terence Stamp is totally understandable. Absolutely. I finally got married at the age of fifty-eight, which I, knew I was that, there. I mean, <laughs> you were there, honey. You were at San yes. Francisco City Hall, and yes. the, the man that I married—would you believe his name is Stephen Elliott? Really? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And it has caused the most unbelievable series of misunderstandings and embarrassing, awkward moments ever since we got together. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, only I would marry somebody called Stephen Elliott. And as I always say, including on stage, I say, look, we're sick of the confusion. To avoid any more confusion or misunderstandings, we're changing his name to Baz Lerman." (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is genius has your Stefan Elliot met priscilla's Stefan Elliot? so we've never seen them in the same room
3: yeah like, he- <laughs> i think they probably have met over the years because step my step did a lot of stuff of uh, volunteer work for mardi gras over the years and i would be very surprised if they haven't been in the same room but we certainly have not met we don't really see Stefan very much. I, I'm not even sure that he. I think Stefan lives back in Brisbane. I, I don't. I ah. never see Stefan out and about in Sydney. So I don't think they. I don't think they have met. But if they <laughs> did, if they did, it might cause a rip in the space-time continuum. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, that is
0: hilarious, and we cannot thank you enough, Mark, for coming on the show. Your insights have been incredible, and um, yeah, you, this has just been a total blast.
3: And I can't wait to see you in San Francisco. Oh, I can't wait to get back. Oh, my God. Folsom Fair. Folsom Fair.
1: Yes, exactly. Although, peaches, I think we got our marching orders that we need to get to Australia. Oh, yeah, we do.
3: do. And, And the thing is, when you do come down, think about coming for New Year's Eve rather than Mardi Gras, because you have to experience tropical fruits. It is in an old fairground that were all built in the 1890s. They have a 20-minute fireworks display in the middle of the bull ring, which we all stand underneath. Oh my God. There is a cabaret. The party goes all night. Then there's a pool party on New Year's Day. And they leave the party set up and we go back and have and continue the party from six o'clock on New Year's <laughs> night. Wow. Okay, we're coming. You'll think you've stepped into Priscilla. Okay, we are ready. It's in a tropical magnificent location. Balmy and warm, insanely fabulous. That's the one you have to come down to. Get that guest room ready, honey. You and me and Cindy, we will co-host the cabaret.
0: All right. That sounds like a deal. Yeah, Perfect. Baby. All right. Yeah. Thank
3: you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Oh, this has been wonderful.
1: And that was our interview with Mark Trevorrow. I have to say, Peaches, the amount of just queer history that Mark brought to his discussion about Priscilla was worth the discussion alone. He's just so thoughtful and insightful about this movie and its place and its importance not only to queer people, but his own place in that history.
0: This is someone who was literally there, is friends with and works with people on stage who were the real life inspirations and not a little bit like the filmmaker, Stefan uh, Elliot and, and the actors. Uh, if you look at the behind the scenes stuff, which we bring up a lot during the interview, but you and I just found it so helpful. Mark really get, goes deeper. And what you find is that this movie was deeply inspired. This movie was very inspired by real life people.
1: Well, he used that phrase docu drag, which right. I absolutely love. And I mean, I knew about the fact that Hugo Weaving's character and and the fact that Mitzi has a son was based on Cindy Pastel. And that was true. But then all the other nuances that Mark brought up about the lay girls, about the clubs, about the Mardi Gras and about how um, Troops of Queens had already been going out into the outback that all just led to so much more enlightenment about how this movie came together.
0: We talk about this a lot, some of the more um, problematic parts of the film. Um, really with this movie, I think for me, um, the dead naming, as, as you brought up, uh, Bernadette, is very cringy and um, not something I think that we would so lightly toss around in today's drag culture or just any culture, really. No, it it was
1: very jarring to watch that through today's lens. And, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit when we had our All About Evil release special about how during the era of The Shack, there was language and ribbing that was okay then that is not okay now. And I think it's good for us as a community to sit and look at how we've evolved, how we've informed each other, how we used to laugh at things, but then took a knee and said, hey, it's not okay anymore. And it's it's our right to leave it in the past. The intention
0: of the film and that style of ribbing at that time in 1994 was a sort of bitchy camaraderie. It yes. was a sort of nasty teasing but that there was this sort of love between the people that allowed for it. And I think what we know today is that's just hurtful. And if you were to present the same kind of quote-unquote teasing, that character would just be seen as a fucking villain and an asshole. And, you know, but when the movie came out, that was not the intention. It's just an interesting thing to watch it now and go like,
1: "Ooh, that's, oh my God, you know. Exactly. Especially because one of the moments where this occurs leads into what I controversially believe is one of the best uses of Mamma Mia in a motion picture. Actually, I think it is the best use of Mamma Mia in a motion picture. Even better than the movie Mamma Mia? That's why I said controversial. Because <laughs> uh, I, I I know that we're going to get at least a few people that are going to be like, girl. Oh, my
0: God. Yeah, probably hot. He loves that movie. My partner loves Mamma Mia. It's one of the one of the, the the most challenging parts of our relationship.
1: Isn't it interesting, though, that Mamma Mia is one of those things where I think that people are either, like, die hard or you just don't get it. And I'd, I... I understand, but I don't get it. Like it's not I for don't. me. Oh my god, he dragged me to Mama Mia too. I had to go see
0: Mama Here Mia. Here we go the again.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the only good part was at the very end of the movie when Cher showed up. But anyways, whatever. I digress.
1: Speaking of Abba in Australian drag movies, so Bill Hunter, who's in uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, who plays Bob. Yes. He was also in Muriel's Wedding, which also used a lot of ABBA music. And did you know, I just found this out this week while I was doing research, he was filming both of these movies simultaneously. Like at the same time, he was bouncing back and forth to the different sets. So not only was he in two pretty much queer classics, but both of them center on the music of ABBA. How's that even work? And just the fact that anyone,
0: as you know, would be able to have the bandwidth. And his part is not that small. No, so it, in it, either no, movie. He does heavy lifting, right, yeah. exactly. So the idea of doing two movies at the same time is really, really unheard of, let alone two movies with these kinds of similarities. You know, Arguably, maybe two of the most famous Australian films ever made, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, Wow, that's really good trivia. Well, as we've discussed, this movie, of course, uh, what came from Australia, but its its reach was far and wide. And one of the things that we, you know, wanted to do um, with this episode specifically is, in addition to myself, is to hear from someone who, you know, as a young drag performer, was really inspired by this film and and, and and how it affected them. And I hadn't started doing drag when I saw Priscilla. So in many ways, Priscilla actually helped give me that nudge, that confidence, that 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 excitement to be in my movie Mopper in full drag and I and I really mean that, you know, but this next guest is someone who was a young drag performer who was doing drag. A- at the time it was hard. In the gay community, it's like you had to come out of the closet, because you were gay. And then you had to come out of the closet again to gay people sometimes or to your family or whoever. And and that was the experience of this next guest who you and I both, you know, are, are friends with.
1: Yes. And, you know, even as you are experiencing Priscilla in State College, she is going to see it in Rochester, New York, which of course shows the reach of this movie. Now from Rochester, New York, she would go on to a national stage on television and become one of the beloved Faces of the RuPaul Drag Race franchise. You know her, you love her. It's Pandora Box. Listeners, Our next guest is not only an avowed fan of the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, but she's also more than familiar with the trials and triumphs of taking drag on the road. As one of the stars of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 2, she became a fan favorite and earned the title of Miss Congeniality in the process. She would return to compete in the original Drag Race All-Stars season, as well as Drag Race All-Stars Season 6. She also appeared in three seasons of the Drag Race spinoff series, Drag You*. Additionally, you can see her in such films and television projects as Netflix's AJ and the Queen, Are You There, Chelsea, and The Bitch Who Stole Christmas. She's also the writer and director behind the short film, Mrs. Kasha Davis, The Life of an International Housewife Celebrity, as well as the writer of the celebrated stage play, The Lipstick Massacre. On top of all that, she's a recording artist, a stand-up comedian, and a master of cosplay. And she's someone I just truly adore as one of the loveliest people I have the pleasure to know. Please welcome drag superstar, Pandora Box. Thank you. You forgot to
0: mention in her many accolades, she was one of the stars of our 9 to 5 Inches show at Midnight Mass at the Castro Theater and our Death Drop Gorgeous show. She played Loretta. It's
2: true. Uh, like, actually, some of my favorite shows that I have ever done. And I'm not just saying it because you're here, really. <laughs> uh, I love the that. that the, was like a highlight.
0: You're like me, and I hope you take this the right way. You are a nerd. And there are <laughs> certain queens... I think Jinx is definitely a nerd. There's a bunch of us who are nerds. And, and part of our love of drag includes a fandom of just pop culture, cult movies, icons. I mean, your Dolly Parton, when you did our 9 to 5 show, was just so fabulous. And it was so obvious that you had studied
2: that film from a fan's point of view. You just, you knew it backwards and forwards. I know every line to that movie. And I think I told you in one part of the script, it was like where Dolly uh where she has to run-in with Mr. Hart, and it's the whole speech. And I was like, um, so you cut it down. Can I do the whole thing? Because I know it <laughs> if I say the Like, I'll know it from start
1: to finish if I say
2: the whole thing. And you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah,
1: go. Yeah, do it. <laughs> you and I have had opportunity to socialize out in the world, and I adore you, but I knew that you were one of my people when the year at DragCon, your whole booth was the TARDIS. Like, you had created this doctor who paradise that in, in the, you know, sea of pinks and lipsticks, you're like, no, this is what I'm all about. <laughs> and also your 13th doctor cosplay is so flawless. The nerdity is, is something that we celebrate here on Midnight Mass.
2: Um, yes. I'm very into the nerdity and I have to give credit to my husband, Ian, cause he built me the TARDIS to, um, to do there. That was incredible. I do like to do things that are different, especially in this immense large world of RuPaul's Drag Race. You kind of have to uh, make your own path because there's like, I think they said there's 152 queens just on the US version alone. So there's a lot. There's a lot of us. (laughs) There's a lot. But you are one of the OGs.
0: Let's not forget (laughs) it. And uh, speaking of OGs in drag, um, we're here to talk about you know, maybe one of the first, it's not the first, but one of the first movies about drag queens where they're actually drag queens the way we know drag queens yes. to be. So you you know, no shade, no sade to Tu Wong Fu, but we do not live in drag <laughs> 24/7. <laughs> this um, is true, you know, true. And so we're here to talk about the Australian uh masterpiece the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert and so i guess let's start at the beginning um when did you first see
2: it and what what were your thoughts i saw it when it came out i saw it in the theater uh there's a theater called the little theater in rochester new york which has a lot of independent movies and such i was just thrilled that there was a movie about drag queens i'm like wait i'm a drag queen and it was the first time i had seen drag queens portrayed as they are. Like I was like, okay, this is us. This is how we act and uh, what we do. And I saw it multiple times in the
1: theater when it came out. And you told Peaches and I, in preparation for this interview, that not only was this crucial for you, but this movie also was crucial to your mom. Could you explain that? Yes. Well, when I came out, no one was really
2: shocked. And so my mom said she had, kind of always knew. But then I had to tell her I was a, a drag queen and that she didn't understand that. She uh, she thought I was a prostitute. Honestly, back in the day, I probably should have charged for all the people I was sleeping with. I would have more. money. <laughs> now, but uh, She just thought of it very. It was very seedy. It was very. And then she was kind of scared for me. Because she knew nothing about drag queens, like nothing, like anything that she had seen, it was like in movies or, and, you know, drag queens weren't always portrayed very well in movies or TV. And so when uh, she was going to come to see a show of mine, but I said, why don't you come and see this movie with me? It's called Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And I think that you will get a better understanding of kind of what drag is. And also it's funny. Like I was like, she's going to laugh. Like she's, she has a good sense of humor. And so, yeah, we, I took her to see that movie. She loved it. She laughed. I took her to see a drag show after. And uh, I say it now laughing because it's like, we called it the Jurassic drag show because it was all older queens that were before <laughs> <laughs> that Which is us now, honey. Yeah, that's why <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> and it was very old school kind of drag, too. It's very like, I have a gown, I'm doing a ballad. And it was a lot of that. My mom's watching the show, and she's like, are, is, "Are all the drag queens so old?" And I'm like, "No, I, come to our show. It's a little, it's a little more modern." So yeah, then then she came to a show, and uh, she, they were like, "Oh, are you, Mama Box. Oh, here it is." And she got to sit at the VIP table, and she got drinks, and and then ever since then, she was like, "So if I come to the show, do I get the VIP treatment?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Of course. How quickly they change. How quickly." They change. Yes. And I, you know, I'm so glad that you brought that up because
0: I think it positions this film and the time that it came out very specifically. I actually hadn't thought about that either, but you're so right. Like I was like you, it was no surprise to anyone in my family, anywhere that I was queer or that I came out, you know, as gay. But I remember when it got uncomfortable was when my Family started to make decisions about whether or not to tell other family and friends that I did drag. And that wow. was the thing that was kind of like embarrassing or shameful. And I'm sure my family probably now would either say that they don't remember that, or if they do remember it, it was kind of like a weird, shitty place to be. My point is that was the norm. Our families weren't bad, drag was misunderstood. It was kind of a secret. It was very, very underground, and I guess because RuPaul had been on MTV with Supermodel, that was about all there was. You know, you know, everything yeah. else was underground as far as real drag goes. You know, um, you know, maybe people had seen Divine and Hairspray, but really, you know, it was it was it was not understood, as, as, especially behind the scenes. And then Priscilla comes out. And Priscilla was a crossover hit. It was a surprise hit. Not only was it a foreign film in the American market, but it was about drag queens and it was unapologetically queer, you know, and it was out at a time when AIDS was still devastating. You know, this is two years before the AIDS cocktail. So I'm glad that you brought that up because it really centers why this movie is actually more important than just a funny smart movie about drag queens. It was actually kind of audacious.
2: Yeah, it really was. And that's why it resonated so much with me at, at first because it was really like, oh, maybe people will understand drag queens if they see this movie. Like, it's like, you know, the things they're going through. And and I rewatched it because I, I was like, well, we're going to talk about it. So let me rewatch it. It's been a minute. I mean, it's got so many iconic lines and stuff in it too. But I had forgotten about the part where they spray paint the bus. And it's yeah. Like, totally, that doesn't register with me anymore because I'm like, it's a painful, horrible part in the movie. And I forgot that I was like, oh, wow, that I mean, it could still happen today. But it's like how much that was still how people thought of drag queens and, and gay people.
1: Peaches speaks a little bit about how her family was trying to navigate telling people that she did drag. Uh, and whether they should tell people, if at all. And and we're talking about the ongoing resonance of this film. And one of the keystones of this film is the storyline about Hugo Weaving's character and how he has a wife and we also learned that he has a son. And we see sort of the reverse of that, how he's trying to deal with revealing to his son, whether he does drag or not. And I just want sort of your take on that because we so often in media see exactly what Peaches is talking about. It's families trying to deal with the reality of the queer person in their lives. But we don't often get this authentic reversal of the queer person trying to navigate the world. So I just want your take on that.
2: For years doing drag, I avoided telling people I did drag. Like if it came up in a conversation with people that I didn't know. I mean, everyone knew who I was. I mean, I came out and then I was Pandora and that's it. <laughs> it was over. <laughs> Sometimes now when people ask me, I'm always like I'm an entertainer because it's still in that back of my head of, of, you know, going through all that and, and and feeling like you're being judged or people don't get it. They're like, oh, what? What is what's a drag queen? And it's like that line, it's like we dress up in women's clothes and parade around mouthing the words to other people's songs. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's such a great line. I was like, I mean, that's pretty much it. That's it. You got it. There's a, there's more things, but it's it's kind of like that. And I think about it sometimes and I'm like, I'm still stuck in that sometimes. And that, And you go through a lot in your life and in a queer life. And you're often, uh, you know, made to feel shame about who you are just being queer and then also a drag queen on top of it it's like even in the in our own community drag was kind of looked down to that a little bit it was it wasn't like it is now like everybody wants to be a drag queen right now (laughs) but then it was like oh we kind of want to see the show but that that's about it you know we're kind of still looking down at you I for sure remember in the mid-90s,
0: especially, and even all the way up to the early 2000s, queer community was really aggressively trying in many ways to be heteronormative. And part of that was by design because they wanted to win marriage equality, which is totally valid. I mean, I of course come from the mindset of like, get rid of all marriage. You know, marriage is you know a horrible (laughs) institution, but that's not realistic, right? That's the punk part of me, but the equal rights part of me is like, well, if there's gonna be marriage, it should be equal. What the queer community did that I did not like is try to achieve marriage equality by making us look quote unquote normal. And so they would put drag queens at the back of the parades. You know, they really wanted to de-drag. They wanted to get rid of dykes on bikes. They didn't want the leather men out there. I mean, this was a real thing. I think a lot of people now don't remember that this was, you know, the way it was. And having a movie like Priscilla come out when it did, it really did open doors. This is a movie that, honestly, yeah. its success changed things. I mean, quite frankly, there wouldn't be a Tu Wong Fu if there wasn't the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Like, we know that. Yeah. We know how Hollywood works. Someone else had to do it first. So... I want to talk about the performances and ask you your thoughts on the performances, because I obviously think that is one of the great strengths of this film. And it wouldn't be fair to criticize these filmmakers for not casting um, a trans woman or gay men to play these parts because people could not be out at that time. The actors could yeah. not be out. The movie, in many ways, Regardless of, of what their sexuality is, we didn't have a pool of out trans actors or, or gay actors. So I'm gonna kind of table that because I don't think that's a fair criticism of this film. Now, today, if the same movie came out, I think it's a fair criticism. But yeah, it, you know, but what do you think of
2: these performances? Because you've got three genius actors chewing the scenery. Two of the actors went on to like, have, like be in these huge blockbuster movies after, which is crazy. Guy Pierce was the first drag queen I had a crush on. <laughs> because... <laughs> so sexy, yeah! Oh my God, he's so hot in it. And uh, they were really like committed. I mean, I really was. I just don't know what their process was, but I'm like, they had to have hung out with drag queens. <laughs> like they had to have like met them or known them because they really they got it. They they and it was like the. Not stereotypes, but it's, you know, it's like the seasoned drag queen, the new drag queen. And then, you know, the the trans woman who is is has done drag for so long. And, you know, she's just still bitter, but still like fabulous. And re-watching it again, their lip syncs were on point. Like, they were so good. It wasn't like they just, I don't know, they just, they took the time to learn the song, like to really, really, really know it and the performances are great i mean the costumes are amazing and i it won an oscar i yeah. believe you, for best costumes yeah and they did make drag queens kind of step up their game with costuming and stuff and i was like oh all right <laughs> i can't just wear buy this uh wear this out from america round I, I should get something else and uh
0: <laughs> the merry-go-round <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's
0: a deep cut for 80s east coast Mall yes. trash. It is. <laughs> um,
1: but, but let's jump into it because this movie did win an Academy Award for Best Costuming. And we know for a fact that the outfit that won them the Oscar was a $7 outfit made out of flip flops. Which is pretty fierce, yeah. but this film is full of amazing looks. From the silver outfit on top of the bus, mm. to what they wear when they do I Will Survive in the Desert, to the finally number. Pandora, do you have a favorite look or looks in this movie?
2: I like them all. I mean, the flip-flop dress, obviously iconic. But I do, I like the finally number. I i think I like when they're, when they're I don't know the what they are, the hats, the they are the ostrich heads or whatever yes. and they're all in the blue. <laughs> um yeah, I love that. I mean I also I also really do love that the crowd is kind of uh they're kind <laughs> of into it. They're like well, that's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. odd. So, one I don't really love is the where they have the pigtails and then they pull the pigtails off where they're on the bar and they've got like those just those short, ugly wigs on. And I was like, no, that doesn't look good, girl. But it was, it was 90s. It was very club kid that it look. It yeah. And also, I have used that one bit in a lot of my mixes that I make where it's still Hunter. <laughs> He's the only one. He's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I put that in so many mixes where I, when I make my mix ends and I put that in there because I <laughs> so I was like, I've done shows like that where there's one person that's clapping and right. they go, they're like,
0: yeah. I um wanted to just say about the performances, I, I was thinking about how. Um, as far as I know, that these are three, you know, cis, straight men. And I was thinking, like, why did I love their performances so much? And I think your point of um, probably they spent time with queer people and they spent time with drag queens and drag performers and older trans people and probably gay people who had kids and had been married because there's this sort of style of performance that we still see today, and I'm thinking about James Corden in um, Prom, if you saw that that new version of Prom, where it just rubs me the wrong way. And you can't put your finger on it exactly. And you go, oh my God, you're, you're kind of trying to be Nathan Lane in the birdcage, but you're not Nathan Lane. And this is coming off as like a, a minstrel kind of like sissy performance that just rubs me the wrong way. And somehow in Priscilla, It is the exact opposite. Like, they are so endearing, so delightful, so real to me. You know, they play it so real. I especially love Terrence Stamp. I just think for the filmmakers to do something that at that time was so challenging, you know, an older trans woman played by Terrence Stamp and where the other, the young queens at that time are really giving her grief, you know especially Guy Pierce, yeah. you know, their chemistry is remarkable. So yeah, I just, I just love it. So is there anything in the movie today, since you watched it recently, what we find is a lot of the movies that we love from the seventies, the eighties or beyond, especially when we look at something like anti-mame or, you know, whatever um, that you watch the movie again and you go like, Ugh, that didn't age well. Uh, you know, was there anything that hit you that way? Rewatching
2: it. I will say, and I absolutely loved her, but I was kind of like thinking of the role of Cynthia shooting ping pong balls out of her uh, occupancy, yeah, um, yeah. which I still think is funny because I mean, she's thrilled to be she's doing brilliant. it. brilliant. Yeah. And I kind of was like, I was just watching it and like, I don't know if, if it's racially insensitive or if it's just the character because I love the character. and That's the only kind of part that I went, oh, I don't know if people. Think this is offensive now.
0: I would agree with that.
1: I'll tell you the thing that kind of jumped out to me on my rewatch of this is you know, Guy Pierce's character, uh, Felicia Jolly Goodfellow, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she needles Bernadette quite a bit. And one of the ways yeah. that she does is dead names her, and it's played for laughs in the movie, which I think that, I mean, it was always wrong, but we didn't know the nuance of it as much as we do now. And so even at the end, when they drive away and the little kid calls out her dead name and you see Terrence Stamp's reaction, we as the audience are supposed to laugh at it. But my reaction now is like, it's the only thing that I was kind of like truly grumbly about. I did think that too, because I was like,
2: oh yeah, I forget that. They did that i mean she just kicked the shit out of him so there's at least that like it's not like it's not <laughs> accepted so i'm like okay it's not like they, they know it's bad and, and felicia's just an asshole <laughs> it's not presented
0: the way it was then it's still like you say it's still a, a negative thing it's painful but now it would just be seen as cruel and we understand how hurtful deeply hurtful that is and how wrong it is um and i also agree with you pandora that um, the ping pong scene and the character, you know, she, she Julia Cortez, the uh, actress who plays Cynthia is so genius, is so great, but that yeah. the way that the character is written as essentially a joke is essentially racist, you know? Um, and that that for me is maybe the the, the the part of the movie that's the most problematic. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, when you look at some of the stuff that they tackle in this film, In a comedy, it was really ahead of its time in many, many ways. You know, just the fact that they tackled both AIDS, being an older trans woman, uh, being the father, uh, you know, also a married uh, man who comes out as gay and has a child. Really incredible stuff. So I guess when looking at this film, of course, a lot of us compare it to Tu Wang Fu. And I'm wondering. What are your thoughts on Tu Wong Fu, and and how do you think the two movies kind of stack up against
2: each other? Tu Wong Fu is cute. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. It's definitely not drag. Like we don't go to sleep in drag, and uh, no one in that town would believe that they weren't men. That's I mean, <laughs> John Leguizamo is like the only one that actually looks like a a lady.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So it's kind of so it's more like a fantasy version of of. Uh, of drag but i mean i i liked it i think it's a i think it's a fun movie i think priscilla and i would always tell people priscilla is what drag queens are actually like and chu wong fu is kind of what people think drag queens are like right well the the mainstream community i should say that's what they think drag queens do they think we live in drag they think it takes five minutes for us to get ready Uh, like all the a lot of things the uh, misconceptions about drag
1: yeah now You already spoke to him a little bit when you mentioned Bill Hunter's lone applause. But when we (laughs) as a wider community talk about this movie, we tend to only really focus on on the three queens. But I want to talk about Bob a little bit because that character, I think, is in many ways the heart of this movie, because as a queer person, we all need a Bob.
2: And I just want your take on him. It's a great character. He does an amazing job uh, playing that character, and also it was kind of like, you know, they're going they're going from Sydney to uh, Alice Springs, and there's really there's a big part of Australia where there's nothing, so it's like you're going to these small towns that don't know anything, and to so just find someone like a, an ally there, and you know, just that drag was no big deal to him. He's like, yeah, oh, I. I like girls, I love it, and they're all like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> they're ready for him to not like get it, and um, and it's that it's that fear too. Like you know, when when the older couple drives away from them, when they, <laughs> when, they when they meet everybody, and they step on the gas and leave them stranded there, it's kind of like that. That's generally what you think your reaction is going to be, and and they're ready for it, they're prepared for it, and then it's like, "Oh wait, surprise! He's actually like a really cool guy."
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny that, it's not funny, it's actually kind of jarring and scary that we're talking about this movie, in many ways, it's been so long. You and I were baby queens when we saw it. And in fact, it came out and I saw it before, just before I started doing drag. I was in college and it was, uh, I was like club kid drag, you know? And uh, Priscilla definitely had a huge influence on my you know, being excited about drag and um, and all of my friends, you know, we just loved it. But you brought up the spray paint scene and the the sort of the, the fear of being bashed because you're a drag performer and the sort of hate that they receive in the movie and how in many ways we think that that is hopefully an outdated thing. But literally a few days ago here in the Bay Area, a queen is doing a drag queen story hour at a library and a bunch of proud boys stormed into the library while this queen is reading a book to children. And they begin screaming homophobic and transphobic slurs at her. They're wearing t-shirts with, you know, semi-automatic weapons on them. They have masks on. It was apparently really traumatic and terrifying. And we have not really, in many ways, yes, we have evolved. But that group of people that hated us then, they're still out there. You know, they still, and we really push their buttons. So
2: it's scary. Yeah, it is scary. And it's like, we, you know, as far as we've come, and it's like, you know, there's the don't say gay bill. Uh, and yeah. there's just, we're still like fighting it. And I think that some of the younger generation isn't aware of it because they've grown up in a time where it's like, okay, the drag race is on. Like we see queer people all the time. And... Uh, there's so much around them and, and they don't realize that it's some of them don't realize that it's like, no, we're really still struggling just as much because it's all coming back. It's all resurfacing. And it's, yeah. and, and now there's these, uh, terrible voices that speak for them. Like, it's, uh, like, uh, the one that I literally loathe, like, I don't know if I've ever hated somebody as much, maybe he, sh- who shall not be named who was president, but, uh, like Marjorie Taylor green is yeah. out there. Uh, she's, spouting all these lies and she's talking about monkeypox and how it's transmitted through gay sex. So I'm literally thinking this is like the AIDS crisis all over again. Like it's literally like it put fear in people and like what was written on their bus and now it's like you've got people like this bitch out there <laughs> telling right. people that that's how you get it is through gay sex only which is false but yeah. it's just these people they they prey on people's fears
1: this line of discussion about the steps forward only to take steps back that we're seeing in the real world kind of leads us to a question we like to ask all of the guests as we start wrapping up. Uh, But I think in this particular case, you've already been speaking to it a little bit and it's maybe even more prevalent because you saw this movie when it first came out, you took your mom to see this movie so she could further understand drag queens. And we're looking at, what a trailblazer it was, how much things have changed, but also how much things have stayed the same. So when you rewatch Priscilla and, and think about it in the context of now, how has your relationship with this movie changed over the years, if at all?
2: It was nice to rewatch it and kind of relive the memories of how much that movie actually meant to me because I was doing drag in Rochester, New York and doing regular drag shows and you know, a lot of times the drag shows were put on, uh, they were on it traditionally on a Sunday night. And I was always like, why aren't they on Sunday? Why aren't they on a busy night? I'm like, well, it's kind of that whole thing of, uh, well, let's just put, give the drag queen Sunday. Like nobody really goes out on Sunday. I mean, we didn't create like a a, a time where it really was busy and, and people were lined up to see. And part of that, why people wanted to go, we wanted a lot of straight people to come because we knew they would be more amazed by drag. And they would come and they would tell their friends and and it worked but Priscilla helped change that. Like RuPaul, like when RuPaul's song came out, like people were like, "Oh, what's drag? Are there is there a drag show?" And when uh, Priscilla came out, it was the same thing. We saw a lot more people coming to our shows because of this movie. Yeah, it's just kind of like a, a nice memory of of remembering this movie and 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 the popularity. And at a time that I'm not, I wasn't so bitter about drag. <laughs> 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 I actually really enjoyed it like <laughs> I was like oh I'm having fun now it's like you know it's it, part of it becomes a job or your hobby and your thing you did for fun is now your career and uh, it's a little Yes bigger. that's relatable content and
0: um <laughs> and yeah I mean I think a lot of us who've done drag for a long long time Obviously we still love it or we would do something else, but your relationship with it changes just like our relationships with these movies change. And I very much identify with your feelings about Priscilla. Rewatching it is a reminder of that excitement around it, discovering something. It's how I feel about rewatching the early John Waters movies. I still get that, that same charge of like, this is queer people being bad, you know, like, and I love it. And I still get excited about it, even though, You know, I'm not excited about, you know, queer people on the street being bad. I'm like annoyed. I'm an old lady, Um, (laughs) you know, but it's it's that thing. Anyway, well, I know we're wrapping up, but you are a drag performer and this is a pride episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. So are you uh, busy? Is this a busy month for you? Did we hit you up in the middle of a million things? Because I know um, for me right now, it's a bit of a busy time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely busy, but it is also something I learned in a pandemic that uh, I have to, if I can, not make my schedule so crazy that I'm like exhausted, and then I'm just not enjoying the work. I'm not yeah. like I'm just kind of going from gig to gig, and I'm just like, okay, right. I have taken those mental health days, and I have tried to make sure that if it's something that can be moved or it doesn't have to be the exact date, then uh,
1: I will do that. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about that you are doing for Pride is you have a special item out in the world that features (laughs) your face uh, that is also going towards uh, a good cause. Could you tell us a little bit about the Pandora box stuffed animal? (laughs) Yeah, I'm a plushie. Uh,
2: (laughs) No, I uh, teamed up with Makeshift. And they uh, do these campaigns. It's kind of like a Kickstarter, but for plushy dolls. And you have to sell so many and then they get made. And uh, yeah, it's in my Pride outfit that I wore last year when we were promoting All-Star 6. And we got to go on the top of the Empire State Building and, and do some photos, which was cool because I've been in New York a lot of times, but I've never actually been to the Empire State Building. So we got to do that. And yeah, so you can uh, go to my website, pandorabox.com with two Xs because the extra X marks the spot. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and it's there. Or you can go to makeshift.com and a portion of the proceeds goes to the Trevor Project. So Excellent.
0: Well, I can think of no better way to wrap things up than to send our listeners to go get that plushie and you, like so many others, can take it to bed with you and sleep with Pandora Box. Uh, <laughs> probably, probably get monkey pox. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: thank you so much, Pandora. You enough, Pandora.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. We loved having you on. Thank you. And that was the fantastic Ms. Pandora box talking all about the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I loved how she was able to actually use this film to help her mother better understand who she was. you know, and that that's the other thing about Priscilla, that great storytelling, great filmmaking does. It often presents people and stories that change our minds about things and and give us a further or deeper understanding around things. And certainly at that time in the mid 90s, the heyday of trash talk show television, drag was just to be exploited as a a freak show. No parent wanted their kid to come home and say
1: they were a drag queen. I know this from personal experience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I love the story that Pandora tells about taking her mom to see the movie. And I I think that the movie's messaging and themes of of that family connection are very key to its heart. Because we see a lot of queer media about queer people who really, really want their parents' approval. But we never really talk culturally about how parents also want their children to approve of them. And in this movie, we see kind of the inverse of what we normally get from queer movies, where Hugo Weaving so badly wants his son to be proud of him, that I think that if you're a parent and you're watching that movie, and maybe you're struggling with the idea that your kid may be queer, maybe a drag queen or whatever, but you're seeing the inverse and you're able to look at it through that lens, that it's all about needing someone to approve of you, to have a place to belong that really probably helped a lot of moms and sons and queer people and their parents.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I love this movie. I'm so glad that we chose this movie and um, we could have chosen a lot of different films to celebrate for Pride Month. You and I actually did a mini mass of a ton of the movies we were considering. So if you're interested in a further uh, discussion about queer film and, and movies we were thinking about for Pride Month, Um, There is a mini mass up on our Patreon that you can uh, subscribe to and listen to, but Priscilla is really, really special. And I just, I'm thrilled that we got to include it in our Midnight Mass
1: podcast. I get it. Not to be cheesy, but it is our Pride special. I, I think that this movie does embody a lot of what the tenets of Pride are about. You know, when when I got the opportunity to see it theatrically recently, which I took my boyfriend, he had never seen it before, and we went and saw it in the theater. I thought back to that first time that I had seen it on VHS and how I wasn't really ready for it. And then subsequently rediscovered it. But I forgot about how... Out loud and proud and special it is, and there is this thing when Guy Pierce is on the top of that bus and the silver leme is like flapping in the breeze behind him with the opera music. With playing. the opera music, yeah. we all want to be that free. We all want to live that unapologetically and that fabulously. And Priscilla posits, "Why can't you?" And I think that we as queer people, no, we as people, need those kind of movies and we need these kind of stories to remind us go out find your tribe find your chosen family and be and just be absolutely and I think that that moment that you're describing
0: is is so beautiful it's obviously the moment that was put on the movie poster and it's just iconic I mean it says so much about queer strength it's a beautiful beautiful shot and it's filmic and it's wonderful so if you are the kind of person who wants to uh, stand on a bus, driving through the desert and a glamorous piece of LeMay floating in the background while opera music plays. And you're also the kind of person, more importantly, who would preserve this sacred turd Of an ABBA member. Well, (laughs) then you too may be one of the children of the popcorn now.
1: Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.